So good to be here, everyone. What a privilege. What a privilege to be together again like this in freedom. And uh, what a privilege for me to talk about communion and the origins and the history of communion and what it means. I could talk for hours on this topic. You have been warned. <laughs> no, we're not going to have a Eutychus moment. Oh, that felt dead. Eutychus, in Acts 20, there's a story of how Paul was going to leave the next day. And so he preached and preached and preached all into the night. And Eutychus, a young man, was sitting in the windowsill in the upper room and he fell out of the window and died. <laughs> We're on the ground floor, don't worry. <laughs> My poor Marco's had a few Eutychus moments. You know, I, uh, as many of you know, I recently finished my degree. He did it with me. He's been listening to my rambles for these last few years and, and all the, the revelation God's given me and I've loved it and he's pretended to love it like a good husband. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you, my darling, for sharing it with me. <laughs> anyway, on to communion. <laughs> I'm going to get serious now. We've done the jokes. Enough. <laughs> my favourite, one of my favourite Bible verses is found in John 1.29. Picture it. John the Baptist sees coming in front of him Jesus. And he doesn't say, oh, look, it's Jesus. No. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When I, when I read those words, I just imagine the scene. So powerful. The word behold, for me, evokes something else. It's not look, is it? It's this old English word. It means stop what you're doing. Take this in. This is beautiful. This is stunning. And for a prophet like John, this was it. This is what he'd been working for all his life. You know, many prophets had prophesied centuries earlier that the Messiah would come and he would bring restoration and he would die for our sins and, and we would all be, you know, gathered into one. And they prophesied amazing, great things that we still enjoy. But they didn't see it in their own life. You know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they didn't see it in their own life. But John, I get excited for John. John saw it and recognized him as the Lamb of God. So lamb was a big thing in that culture. Lamb was sacrificed daily, morning and evening, every day. Day after day after day after day after day for centuries to cover for sins. Because sin could only be covered by something dying. And the lamb was the closest thing they could get to represent innocence, blameless, defenseless. But as we know, a lamb couldn't do it. So they had to keep repeating this over and over and over. And they were living in the promise that one day the Messiah would come and that would, you know, and that would be that would resolve it once and for all. And John saw him and recognized him. But the one feast where the slaughter of lamb was on another level, on an industrial scale, let's say, was the Passover feast. Every Jewish family across the whole of Israel had to bring a lamb to the temple in Jerusalem, give it to the priest. It had to be slaughtered on that day at twilight. It then had to be roasted and eaten, all of it. And this was taking place for centuries. 
every year for centuries because God had commanded it. He said, you are to do this forever. So when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, this is the lamb. This is the Passover lamb. It made sense to him. This is going to be the final lamb. One more, the special one, God's own lamb. And in fact, it was at the last Passover that Jesus instituted a new Passover, the, the Lord's Supper. So to understand the connection, we're going to go back 1,500 years before the Last Supper. The children of Israel, they were in Egypt, as Duncan mentioned this morning, talked about it. And we're going to do a whole series in Moses. So much we can learn from Moses. So don't miss a single week of that. And it's starting uh, next week. Yeah. The children of Israel were, were slaves. They were in Egypt. They had been there over 400 years. And the situation was desperate. The conditions were backbreaking. No respite. And the more God blessed them, they were increasing in number. God was blessing. They were multiplying. The more he blessed them, the more Pharaoh grew angry and made the conditions even worse for them. And so they cried out to God, God, deliver us. Have mercy. Someone, come, help us. And so God sent Moses. And we know the story. Moses didn't want to do it. He's like, what, me? I'm not qualified. We know that. He did. He did do it in the end. He went to Pharaoh to demand that he let God's people go. Initially, it was just let them go. Let them go. They just want to go and worship God. Now, Pharaoh starts playing games. He's like, I don't know this God. Why should I let, him? Why should I let you go? I don't know him. He's not one of my gods. Proper mocking and scorning. Then he says, okay, you can go. Then he changes his mind. Then he's backwards and forwards. And so God unleashes his power with a series of plagues. And these plagues were to demonstrate that God is supreme over the idolatry of Egypt. Egypt was idolatrous. They had gods that were just worthless and useless. And at the root of sin is idolatry, refusing to give God his just worth. Now, the first nine plagues, we know there were 10 in total, right? The first nine these were just the warm-up act. They were horrendous, but they were nothing like what was going to happen at the 10th plague. Does anyone know the nine plagues that went ahead of the 10th one? Water turned into blood, flies, uh, frogs, flies, lice, they might not be in order, boils on the skin, locust, hailstorm, we've had frogs, a cuddly toy, huh? Anyone remember that program? Um, no, the pestilence, diseased cattle, and darkness for three days. They're nine. We said them. Well done. <laughs> nine plagues that caused horrendous havoc. Oh, did we say locust? Yeah, destroyed every. Yeah, yeah, all of them. Fantastic. But it was the tenth plague that was the one that set in motion the Exodus. You know, the exodus didn't happen because the people walked out. They, didn't, they just stopped working. They went on strike. Nothing the people did enabled the exodus. The exodus happened because of the death and blood of a lamb. All the people had to do was follow God's instructions in faith. And these were the instructions. Take a one-year-old male lamb with no defects, just the right size for your family, if you had a small family, you shared it with another family. 
You do this on the 10th day of the month. This is going to be a new month, a new year for you, said God. They take it into your home, take care of it, and on the 14th day at twilight, slaughter it without breaking any of its bones. Jesus entered Jerusalem on the first day, Monday, and four days later on the Friday, he was slaughtered and not a bone was broken. We're already seeing the foreshadow of what was going to come. Then they were to dip a branch of a hyssop plant into the blood of the lamb that had been collected in a bowl, and they were to paint it on the doorpost and the lintel of their houses. They were to eat the lamb, all of it, with unleavened bread. There was no time for the bread to rise, for the yeast to rise. They were to eat it in their individual home. They were not to go out at all until the next morning. They were to be dressed, ready to leave, because God was going to deliver them that night. No time wasting. When the Lord passes over, the homes with the blood on the doorpost and the lintel will be spared. But in the Egyptian homes, every firstborn will die, human and animal. And God instructed them that this would be a lasting ordinance, that when they reached the promised land, they would continue to do this. From generation to generation, they were to tell their children about the Passover sacrifice and how God had spared them that night. And so that night at midnight, the Lord came by, passed over, the Passover. And his judgment over Egypt and sin was unleashed. And the houses that had the blood on the doorpost and lintel, the blood that covered them, was spared. But every Egyptian home, firstborn, died from the very, very top, from Pharaoh's own household, all the way down to the prisoner in the dungeon, all the way to the animals, every single firstborn. I worked that out in our home alone. That'd be me, I'm a firstborn. Marco's a firstborn. Mimi's our first. The only people left to be Lexi, who's 10. <laughs> One of the cats would die, the firstborn. We have two. So it'd be Lexi and a cat left. Not to mention aunties, uncles, cousins, all the firstborn. Every home in Egypt, grief-stricken. So that night, Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron in the dead of night and summons them and tells them, leave. Leave, get out, get out. And the Egyptians were begging, please go, we're all going to die here. They Suddenly, they recognized the power of the supreme, one true living God. And I like when Pharaoh says, go. And bless me too. He recognized, you guys, you've got a God that's far more powerful than my rubbish. And so the Israelites left Egypt. And as they headed off, they hit their first encounter, the Red Sea. And on, what were they going to do? And, the, and at this point, Pharaoh's changed his mind again. And he's chasing up. His army is after them. And they can see it. And they think, oh, we should have died in Egypt. And already they're losing faith. But God performs this amazing miracle. He opens the sea. And as they go through, almost in this symbolic baptism, and the waters close behind them, a new nation is born. They are free freedom at last and they are God's people free to worship free to live the life that he has called them to live and you know they weren't a grateful people they grumbled and groaned and moaned and they were oh it was so good back in Egypt oh my goodness it was horrendous in Egypt and yet they forgot so quickly we're hungry and God 
perform miracle after miracle. And one of the greatest miracles was the, was the manna. The manna fed them for 40 years, every morning. And do you know what manna means in Hebrew? It means, what is it? That's all it means, because they didn't know what it was. Manna is like this bread-like food that tasted of honey, and honey represents blessing and promise in the Bible. And um, it's referred to as the bread of angels in Psalm 78. So it is from heaven. It's this bread from heaven. And God provided it every day for 40 years, and it was fresh every day. They couldn't store it. Every day it had to be new. Only on Fridays were they instructed to collect double for Sabbath, and that was it. And then God provided the meat in the evenings. So bread in the morning, meat in the evenings, and he sustained them. He sustained them physically and spiritually. This manna was so precious that a portion was kept inside the Ark of the Covenant, which had the Ten Commandments, and Aaron's rod, which had budded. And this, in turn, was kept inside the temple in the most holy place where only the high priest could enter once a year. Centuries later, Jesus would speak of manna from heaven as being temporary, but he was now the bread from heaven. And whoever eats of this bread will live forever. You see, it has to be eaten. The sacrifice alone couldn't save. They had to also eat it, all of it. There's something in the act of eating, isn't it? We ingest it, we absorb it. it, it, it nourishes us, it sustains us, we heal, we grow. There's life in eating. And that is why Jesus died at Passover. So if Jesus had only come to forgive us of our sins, he would have died on, on a different festival, uh, the Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. That one, that was a very solemn festival, which was for the forgiveness of sins only. The high priest would go into the holy place, only he could enter, and that one was for forgiveness of sins. But Jesus came at Passover, because Passover represents a lot more than forgiveness of sins. It's deliverance, reconciliation, healing, restoration of sons and daughters, uninterrupted access to the throne of God. We don't need to go through a priest anymore because Jesus, the high priest, was priest and sacrifice. And he came to give us life, an abundant life. He's come to give us eternal life, but life begins now. Our eternal life begins now. We live it from now. And one day, we will be in eternity. He gives us his joy, his peace. He claims us as his own. And even when we're going through difficult times... He gives us his peace. He wants to give us his peace so we can get through it. The first thing we ask for in the Lord's Prayer, once we've declared who God is as holy, like Duncan said, he got stuck on holy is your name, hallowed be your name. But once we've declared that he is holy and we want his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, the first thing we ask for is give us today our daily bread. It's not about forgiveness, not about any. Give us our daily bread. It's not about the food on our table, he knows we need that. He provides that. It's about Jesus, the bread from heaven, bread of life. The Last Supper was a Passover meal. What Jesus was doing with his disciples is what the Jewish people call a Seder meal. 
the Seder means the order. They're following an order. Uh, they, they eat, they drink cups of wine at different intervals. Each one represents a different blessing. It's a wonderful occasion. You know, I love, uh, sometimes I think we should do communion a little bit like the Jewish people do. It's a celebration. They've got the best china, the expensive stuff. And, and it goes on for hours. And there's much laughter and rejoicing. And they're eating and they're praying and blessing. And they sing hymns taken out of the Psalms. And it's just wonderful. But it, it's, if it's missing something, the new covenant the promise of Jesus, then it's just a fancy dinner, isn't it? On the night of the Last Supper, while celebrating the old Passover, Jesus established a new Passover. Only one more lamb to be slaughtered. He had the meal with them, with his disciples, and he instituted a new ordinance, the Lord's Supper. And in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33, it says, The days are coming, declares the Lord. This was prophesied centuries earlier. When I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. We are the people of we are Israel talk, means people of God, God's people. That's us. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. After Jesus ate the Passover for the last time, he became the Passover sacrifice for one last time. And he established this new ordinance for us. And it takes place at a table that he has prepared for us. So how do we come to the Lord's table? We're going to, first of all, four things. First, we recognize it's about obedience. We do this because Jesus commanded it. Second, we recognize that this is an act of worship. So it's for the believer. We worship him when we do this. Third, it's a solemn occasion because Jesus died a horrendous death, and death is not light. But it's also a celebration because the significance behind communion means everything for us. And fourth, we do it together, one body under Christ. Now, there's a passage in Corinthians where Paul is having to teach about coming to the Lord's table in a worthy manner because there was some serious unworthiness going on, some idolatry. They were doing all sorts of things. So I've just summed up four points in how do we take communion in a worthy manner? Well, point number one is we remember what Jesus has done. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So we come and we remember. And by remembering, we are part of the big story. We remember together as a body, as if we were there. If we neglect to remember, we will become casual about God's goodness and his faithfulness. And we risk taking our salvation for granted. We remember that his sacrifice has set us free from sin and it's his death in exchange for our life. We are free from guilt and shame. We remember how we have hope, life and a future and so we worship him. We come before him with love, gratitude, joy and humility 
as we stand before a holy God. He gave us everything. We come with a desire to honor, serve, and glorify him with our lives. When Jesus asked us to remember, he wasn't simply saying, don't forget. Remembering is an action word in the Bible. When God remembers, he acts. You know the story of Leah, the unloved wife of Jacob? God remembered her and blessed her with children. Or Hannah, desperate for a baby, God remembered her and gave her Samuel. Or the thief on the cross who said to Jesus, remember me when, I'm, when you're in paradise. And Jesus said, you're with me today in paradise. When God remembers, he acts. And so our remembering is an action. We remember the past and we anticipate what is coming. And we worship him. Number two, he communes with us. He is present as we gather together. He's here right now. Sometimes I think, Lord, I'm sorry we're speaking about you in the third person, but we know you're here. We are his bride, united as one. He receives and inhabits our praises, and he gives us his grace. And so we respond again, I'm going to say this again, by worshipping him. We recommit our worship of Christ and Christ alone. Dola brought that word this morning about recommitting ourselves. Thank you, Dola. I just think that's just... That is powerful. We need to commit ourselves daily, don't we? No mixed loyalties, no idolatry, having no other gods before him. It's the place of purification, the table. We examine ourselves. We check our hearts and our thoughts. We recognize the need to confess and repent of when we rob God of his due, of when we're not bringing honor and glory to his name, when we don't act as sons and daughters, and we receive healing and renewal. Number three, we commune with each other. We're, we're created for relationship with him and one another, and we commune with each other in unity, our oneness in the body of Christ. One faith, one Lord, one spirit, one baptism. We celebrate our shared eternal life. We look to the past and we look to the future. All this happening in communion. Isn't it incredible? We minister to each other, encourage, uplift, and serve one another. We seek peace with each other, and we're quick to forgive. <laughs> COVID has separated us for a time. Thanks to technology, we were not completely separated. But there's something about physically being together, isn't there? What a joy. And our desire to, should be to be in each other's presence, devoted to serving God, living together on mission together. Number four and final point, we proclaim his death until he returns. That's why it's for the believer, because we're proclaiming the work of the cross. And we anticipate the completion of the kingdom when we will do this with Christ that's why this is an act of worship. It's for believers. We cannot worship him if we don't accept him. We can't proclaim his work of salvation if we don't accept that he has saved us. We will forever be celebrating the cross and remembering our redemption and how the curse of sin has been reversed. And we will look to eternal life when we will be at that wedding banquet. In Revelation 19.9 it says, and this is us people, Blessed are those, blessed are we who have been invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And that's us. 
And that's why Jesus was the Lamb of God. The first lamb at the first Passover redeemed a household. Remember, they had to do it in their home. Don't leave until the next day. Cover your doorpost with blood. It redeemed the nation, but the Lamb of God has redeemed the entire world. You just have to choose to accept it. I'm going to invite Andy up now, who's going to lead us in the act of communion. So powerful, isn't it, when you start thinking about Jesus and communion.